Welcome to the Life Church of Kansas City podcast. Please consider following, sharing, and supporting by giving at tlckcmo.com. May you be blessed by the word of God. I'll get forgiveness later. We love him. We appreciate him. He is helping this city and the people of God in this city to put Jesus on the map in this city and to see the kingdom of God elevated. Brother Stone King is a lifter. He raises all the boats that he finds himself around, and we appreciate him. Can we receive Brother Lee Stone King again in the Life Tabernacle in Kansas City? God bless you, wonderful people. I am genuinely impressed with you folks. The reason I like you is because you really are a bit wild here. You really get into it, and I like it, and Jesus likes it. And as long as he likes it, we couldn't care less what anyone else says or thinks. As long as God likes it, we're going to do it for him. There are many things I could do here this morning, but I want to draw your attention to the scriptures. And I want to entitle this today, Prophecy for Our Day. There is no doubt but what we are living in the last final hours of time in this particular dispensation. I really believe that Jesus will come in my day. I believe that he will. And I want to read to you today, here this morning, from First Chronicles chapter 17 and verse 9. Here is a promise from the Lord. It says, Also, I will ordain a place for my people Israel and will plant them, and they shall dwell in their place and shall be moved no more. Neither shall the children invade the pleasant land desolate. But in spite of those judgmental prophecies, and there are many of them, I've only cited just a very few of them here this morning, but there were also prophecies about their return to the land from which they had been driven. In Isaiah 61 and 4, the prophecy is, and they, meaning the Jewish people, the Hebrew children, the house of Israel, and they shall build the old waste, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. Isaiah 35 and 1 says, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. I want to simply reiterate, the title is Prophecy for Our Day. Would you lift your hands, your voices, and your hearts, and would you pray that God will illumine your mind and your soul and your heart and help you to feel a spirit of urgency about yourself and about this world. Lord Jesus, this morning, I thank you for the wonderful, wonderful touch of God that is in this house. I praise you for every man, woman, child, and young person that is here. May we be touched by the Master's hand. May we hear the sandal-footed footfall of the man from Galilee walking through the corridors of our hearts. 
Will you anoint us both to hear and to speak? I pray this morning in the name of Jesus that you will anoint these lips of clay and cause the word of God to become quickened to our hearts and our lives. I praise you, Lord, today for all that you have done. We give you glory and praise. We ask all of these things in the matchless, resplendent, or powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. The Lord bless you. You may be seated. The Jewish people are rich in history. For example, if you read the Bible, the very moment you open the cover of the Bible and begin to read from the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, you don't read very far until you become acutely aware of the fact that God is not willing to abide alone in eternity. But God, being a God of love, wanted to give. It is impossible to give unless there is a recipient to receive the giving. So, in essence, God stepped out on space and he thought and he thought and he thought until he thought, I will make me a world. And out of nothing, he spake this world into existence. But God was lonely still. And so he thought and he thought until he thought, I will cause the mountains to bulge up and the valleys to be hollowed out. And I will cause the tree to lift its finger to the sky and worship me. And I will speak to the forest forest and the animals will leap through the forest and I will speak to the air and the air will be cut by the wings of fowls and I will speak to the oceans and the waters and I will cause the water to be divided by the great fishes. In essence, everything and in truth, everything that God made, he spoke it into existence with one exception. When it came to me and to you, he spoke to himself. Because he said, let us make man in our image. By the pearl of majesty, the sum total of his power and assets, God fashioned us out of the dust of the earth and breathed into us the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Man alone has the unique, distinct honor and privilege of having been made, shaped, and formed in the image and likeness of God. There is nothing else in existence that can boast such a thing. This whole business of evolution is absolutely a total joke. I did not evolve some, from some animal swinging by his tail from a tree limb. That's nonsense, total nonsense. We were made in the image and likeness of God. There's one basic way you can disprove evolution instantaneously. They tell us that evolution is the process by which all of us arrived at where we are today. However, they also tell you that we all evolve from lower forms of life through freakish mutations. The scientific medical evidence here is that with every mutation, the DNA molecule is not strengthened, it is weakened. The viability is destroyed. It is impossible to have evolved from some lower form of life. Plus, the fossil record declares that the creation story is true. If evolution were true, we would expect to find from the fossil record in the earth thousands and thousands and thousands of fossilized transitional forms between lower forms of life without vertebrae to vertebrae. They have not found one. There's not one. 
The Bible really declares that God created and suddenly there were highly complex forms of life that appeared everywhere. The fossil record says that the Bible account is true, that evolution is false. Case closed. Clap your hands and worship the Lord for a moment. Turn to your neighbor and say, I am godlike. That ought to put your feet to dancing and your lips to shouting and your voice to singing. That ought to cause your hands to clap this morning to understand and know that we were made in the image and likeness of God and that God is in this house today. And that's why we are clapping and that's why we are shouting and that's why we are singing and that's why we are preaching and that's why we're getting involved the way we get involved. I can tell you, vast crowds are shouting today over home runs that have been hit, etc. We hit a few home runs here last night and wiped a few things out in the spirit world. And so we are shouting today over the victory and the glory. But on with my story. <laughs> God made man not like the animal kingdom. Animals live and operate by instinct. But God gave man a will. And he treats that will as a sovereign. God will never transgress your will. He will never force you to serve him. He will never force you to anything. He will only invite. You have the power of choice. The power to say, yes, I will serve God. Or no, I will not serve God. The Bible says many are called, but few are chosen. Why? What kind of sense does that make? Because many people are called, but between the calling and the choosing stands the will of man that says, no, I will not be chosen. And people make their own decisions, and usually the wrong decisions. And God, looking at creation, Adam and Eve fell, they were driven from the garden, but man, man was God's master creation, and God wanted desperately, God wanted desperately to have fellowship. He loved his creation. The Bible says that God walked in the cool of the evening. He came to the garden to do one thing, to find fellowship with his creation, mankind. That should tell you a great deal about God right there. God gave them a language. They didn't learn to speak as our children learned to speak from us. God gave them a language so that they could communicate with him and he could talk with them. They made the wrong choice. They were driven from the garden. But that did not stop the courtship desire of God toward his master creation. He courted man. Man became so wicked and so vile that eventually God even repented himself that he had made man. And finally there was a man called Noah who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And even out of that there was only eight souls saved. And then they were commanded to replenish the earth and be fruitful and multiply. And out of that posterity, still they would not serve the Lord. But God eventually found a Chaldean, a heathen, a pagan, whose name was Avram, Abram. And God drew near to this Chaldean. And God began to court him. And Avram, or Abram as we know him, Abram began to reciprocate to the voice, to the touch of this creator. 
And God himself, the creator, made promises to Abram and said to him, if you will serve me, if you will keep my statutes, if you will teach my statutes and my laws to your children and to their children's children, then I will bless you as the sands of the seashore and as the stars of the heavens at night. Your posterity, your children, your future generations will be without number. And Abram continued to walk in the promises of God and he drew closer and closer until God got so involved with Abram, that he entered into a blood covenant relationship with this human being. God said, I will institute the covenant of circumcision for you, Abram, and you bring a heifer for me and slay that, and we will mix our blood together. God entered into a blood covenant relationship with man. And once God entered into that covenant ship, God is a covenant-keeping God. He would not break that covenant. If you understand what I'm saying here this morning, you can leap for joy. Because when God did that, he said to Abram, I'm going to change your name. In the Old Testament, there was no name of God. They had only terms of relationship. Adonai, Elohim, El Shaddai, Shalom, etc., etc. They called God by how he dealt with them as they walked through life. If they had peace, they addressed him as Shalom. They also addressed him as Adon. They also addressed him as Hashem, which means the name. But as far as a real permanent name, he didn't have one. The best they had was something called the Tetragrammaton. It was a J-H-V-H, a W, a Y-W-V-H, and it was called the Tetragrammaton. It was four consonants that could not be pronounced, and it represented the name of God. And God did something here. He said to Abram, I'm going to change your name from Abram or Avram to Avraham. I'm going to change it from Abram to Abraham. God took an H out of the Tetragrammaton, hooked it on the end of the name of Abram, and changed his name from Abram to Abraham. In other words, suddenly God mingled his name with his people. This business of being a people called by the name is not a new thing. It's not a New Testament thing. It goes back to ancient days. God has always wanted a people that were called by his name. And then he said, Abraham, bring your wife. He said, I'm going to change her name. And he hooked an A on the H of her name, Sarai, and called her Sarah or Sarah. And so now we've got a family in the earth that is called by the name of God. Tap your hands again and worship the Lord. Hallelujah. Abraham, Abraham is called the father of the faithful. Abraham walked with God, kept his statutes, and the Jewish people or the Hebrew nation was born. And God courted them, and he used them as a receptacle. He absolutely invested his treasure in them. He told their prophets secrets about the future, the past, the present. And God used them as a repository. He invested his truth and his life in them. And they kept it. They wrote it on scrolls. They hid it in caves. They died for it through history. Because God invested his truth and his treasure in the people of Israel. They were a mighty people. 
As long as they walked with God, no other nation could take them over. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And finally, a prophecy had gone forth that there would come a day. Abraham was a friend of the pharaohs of Egypt, and he traversed from the land of, of Canaan into the land of Egypt. But there was a prophecy that went forth that there would rise a king in Egypt that knew not Abraham nor his posterity, and he would enslave the people. And it came to pass. That's how the Jews got into bondage in the land of Goshen in Egypt. But God had a master plan here because out of a small Bedouin group of people over a period of about 400 years, he raised up a people of three to six million. And at the appointed time, God sent a deliverer because the Hebrew children cried out because of the taskmaster's whip and the bondage of Egypt. And that's an incredible story. But eventually... God raised up a man whose name was Moses. The decree had gone forth from Pharaoh that every male child born in the huts, the mud huts of the Hebrew children, the land of Goshen, should be put to death. But when Moses was born, Amram and Jochebel saw that this child was a proper child. And so the mother of this baby built a little ark and sealed it with pitch. That's how American oil found oil in the Middle East when they were searching for oil. One of the researchers, the scientist, remembered in Sunday school the story of the mother of Moses building a little ark and sealing with pitch. Scientists know where there is pitch, there is oil. So they used the Bible to trace the very geographical location, went there and drilled and found it. The Bible is true, the scholars are wrong. <laughs> Hallelujah! And this mother, this mother of this baby put that baby in that ark and set it afloat on the crocodile infested waters of the Nile River and the hand of God I tell you people here this morning if God is for you there is no one that can be against you if God is for you he'll make a way for you where there is no way and so this little ark floated to safety in among the reeds and the rushes near a place where the daughters of the house of Pharaoh were bathing and one of the princesses saw this ark and lifted it from the Nile and named him Moses. Moses is not a Hebrew name. It's an Egyptian name and it means pulled or drawn from the water. And Moses was reared in the courts of Pharaoh. He had a brilliant education, science, astronomy, mathematics. He had a brilliant education. Moses, when God used him to deliver the Hebrew children and when they opened the gates of Egypt, and those people began to pour out on the desert floor by faith toward the land of promise. There is no way to tell you their excitement. Moses was a theocrat. Say theocrat. That means that God spake directly to Moses and Moses spake directly to the people. So the people then lived under what is called a theocracy. When Moses died, Joshua succeeded him. Joshua also was a theocrat. God spoke directly to Joshua, and Joshua spoke directly to the people. When Joshua died, the, the land of Israel, the people of Israel, the Hebrew children, fell into a period of judges. It was a topsy-turvy period in their history. But they had some great judges. There was Jephthah. There was Samuel. Uh, there was 
uh, Samson, etc. Samuel was one of the greatest of all the judges. He was a circuit-riding preacher-type evangelist, and they feared the anointing upon his life. But something happened during the days of the ministry of Samuel. And that is that the people called upon Samuel and they said, Samuel, we want an earthly king that we can see. And Samuel was grieved. And he said, no, God wants to be your king. Let God be your king. Let us go on with this theocracy. The people said, no, we don't want this anymore. We want an earthly king that we can see like the nations around us. And Samuel said, but if you get a king, he will take your daughters to become concubines. He will take your men to fight his wars for him. He will tax your grain. He will tax you. He will cause you to become poor. In essence, the people said, we don't care what he does. We want a king. So Samuel went out to look for a king, and he found a young man who was head and shoulders above the rest of the people. His name was Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. Saul reigned 40 years over all 12 tribes of Israel. But Saul fell into idolatry and witchcraft in the end, and his end was sad and traumatic. So then God spoke to Samuel. Samuel was praying one day for Saul, and God said, don't pray for him anymore. Can you imagine some of us here having a burden for you and going to our appointed place of prayer and begin to pray for you, and God speak to us and say, don't pray for them anymore. I've let go of them. My God in heaven, people, God forbid that should ever happen to any of us. But it happened to Saul. And so Samuel took his horn of oil and went out in the countryside looking, looking for a king to replace Saul. And he came to the house of Jesse in the land, in the area of Bethlehem of Judah. And here in this place, Jesse, the father, paraded all of his sons by this old prophet. And the prophet just watched. He just stood there and watched them. When the last son was paraded by, Samuel said, is there not another one? And Jesse said, well, yes, yes, there is a boy in the field, David. He's with the sheep, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said, fetch him, go get him. And so Jesse gave the command to those older boys, go get David. And they ran like a gazelle looking for this boy. And when they found David playing his harps, plucking the keys and singing, he said, David, Samuel is at the house, and he wants to see you. And they started. But back at the house, Jesse was trying to be hospitable. He said, read the text, it's in there. He said to Samuel, he said, Samuel, here, here is a seat. Sit down and rest until David comes. And Samuel said, I will not sit down. What he was really saying is, I will not sit down until the king comes. That's what he was saying. There is a voice in this hour, Pentecostal apostolic friend of mine. There are voices in this hour that are saying to us, take your rest. Sit down. You don't have to go to church every time the doors are open. You're exhausted. You're tired. 
But there's something in me that says no. We will not sit down. We will not sit down. We will not stop preaching. We will not stop clapping. We will not stop reaching for people. We're not going to sit down until the king comes. We are not going to stop this until the king comes. Clap your hands again. Do you feel like shouting this morning? Hallelujah! I feel like we had a shout with our voice. Shout with a voice of triumph in this house today. Say, I will not sit down. get so tired of traveling but you know what keeps me going I'll tell you what keeps me going I don't like to travel it's a tremendous sacrifice for me to travel I would not do this for business or corporation I will do it for Jesus but he's the only one I'll do this for I would not live out of a suitcase for anyone no way I'm a homebody I like to be home but for him and for you I will do this you know what keeps me going I've got this horrible feeling it drives me someday when I actually see him and when I kneel before him and look at gaping holes and feet I'm going to wish I had done this so much better I'm going to wish I had lived it better I had preached it harder I had been more faithful and more dedicated and more consecrated when I see him it's going to be something people it's going to be something when the heavens open and he descends it will be worth it all the songwriter said when we see jesus it will be worth it all it'll be worth every agonizing step it'll be worth every tear it'll be worth every battle that we have fought your hands again there's something very wonderful that has just settled here open your heart wide some of you there are tears running down your face some of you are trembling because you feel something that has walked in this place <clears throat> and so David walked in before the prophet and when David walked in something leaped in the heart of Samuel he felt what he needed to feel and as the boy began to walk toward him he was uncorking that horn of oil and when David got up there that old prophet poured that oil down over his head it ran down over his naked shoulders you know what Samuel was doing he was greasing his head to slide a crown on it later that's exactly what he was doing that's exactly what he was doing and David stood there but David was never the same from that moment on and you'll never be the same if the anointing of God ever rests upon you or ever comes upon you once God gets a hold of you you'll never be able to leave this you'll never be able to go back to the world you'll never be able to hallelujah And so eventually David became king, and David also ruled over all 12 tribes for 40 years. David was succeeded by his son Solomon. There are so many details. Sufficient to say that Saul reigned 40 years over all 12 tribes. David reigned 40 years over all 12 tribes, and Solomon reigned 40 years over all 12 tribes. But Solomon fell into idolatry. Solomon was the wisest man who has ever lived. There's never been anyone like him before him, nor shall there be one like him after Solomon, because 
of the great kingdom he built. They say that the temple of Solomon was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, that there has never been anything built like it in the history of man. Even the queen of Sheba, when she came, she said, the half has never been told. Her knees weakened at the glory and the sight of it all. So the kings of the earth sent their daughters to Solomon in marriage to secure peace between him and their countries. They were afraid of him. And they married as many as they could into his particular royal family. But the problem was that these heathenistic, paganistic wives kept their gods, their idols, and Solomon allowed them to build the groves, or what we would call something like totem poles in the mountains round about Jerusalem. They erected, they set up these statues and built them up that they could go out there from the palace and the temple grounds that they could worship their gods that they had known from childhood. And Solomon made the mistake of following his wives to those groves, and he began to worship also. And he fell into idolatry. When Solomon died as a judgment from God, God divided the kingdom of Israel into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. If you don't understand this, you can get tangled up in the Old Testament because you read for a long time just about Israel. And all of a sudden you flip someplace else, you're reading about Israel and Judah. And you think, I don't understand what's going on. This is what's going on. Solomon has died and the kingdom has been divided. The northern kingdom was called Israel and the southern kingdom was called Judah. Israel did not have one good king. They were absolutely corrupt, wicked, abominable, and they were idolatrous. So for the people's sake, God had to raise up a voice for them. So the northern kingdom had the greatest prophets of all. The kings were wicked, but God gave them mighty prophets like Elijah and Elisha. That's where they came from, the northern kingdom. I can take you to the caves of Elijah in the Mount Carmel mountain range. We'll go there if you go to Israel with me. I'll show you the entire thing. Those old Jews come in there still in the caves where they believe Elijah slept. And they light candles because it's dark in there. Not because they're Catholic, because it's dark. And they sit there and they sway and they worship and they chant and they get involved. I'm telling you people, there is something here today and there was something here last night from ancient days. This is not a new religion we're in here this morning. This goes back to the tents of Abraham. What we've got a hold of here this morning goes back to the tents of Abraham. We are the people of God. The one true God. What is his name? Jesus. Say it again. Jesus. Say it again. Jesus. Can you feel the air tremble when you mention his name? You can feel the air tremble at the mention of his name. The northern kingdom was like that. The southern kingdom had some good kings. They also had some good prophets. Isaiah, for example, Hezekiah. Incredible. But the northern kingdom became so wicked and so vile. The people became so animal-like that God, at one point, sent in a plague of lions to devour the people. And that didn't wake them up either. So eventually, in the eventuality of all things, God went on with them he stayed in there with them. He kept trying to reach them until about 721 B.C. And God allowed the king of Syria to come and to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. And from that time on, there is no longer a nation of Israel. There's only a nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. And the king of Syria 
took the best people out of the northern kingdom. He took them out and transplanted them in foreign lands. He brought the refuse of society, the poor and the beggarly elements. He brought them into the northern kingdom. And he further weakened the structure. His plan was to totally annihilate the Jewish people, their race and their blood. That's where the Samaritans came from. That's why the Jews in the province of Judah at the time of Jesus, they hated the Samaritans because the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were not true Jews. They were a mixture of all kinds of Gentile abominations and practices. And the Jews would not even go through the land. But this Jesus, this Jesus, he is not afraid of your sin. He's not afraid of your past terrible record. He will knock on your door. He will eat with you no matter where you've come from. No matter where you have come from. Only Jesus. That's why we love him. That's why we serve him. Do you understand that my father was an alcoholic? I was raised in poverty. I have worked since I was 12 years of age. I had one pair of Levi's when I went to high school. Don't tell me how you've suffered. I don't want to hear it. I've been there. But you are what you are because you want to be that way. If you didn't want to be that way, you can rise above it. With this Jesus, you can rise above it. You can be what you want to be in Jesus. Tap your hands. There's something happening here now. Jesus, set us free. Set young people free from their past now in the name of Jesus. I command it in the name of Jesus. I plead the blood of Jesus upon every young person here today now in Jesus' name. So I can say authoritatively here today, I lived on Dead End Street. My house number was zero. But Jesus knew my address. And he came one day and he knocked on my door. And I opened the door and I've never been the same since. I've never been the same since. I've never been the same. I never will be the same. You can't be the same. Once you ever open the door and look at him, you never can be the same. You can't be the same. You can't be the same. Never. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Worship you. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You may be seated. So the northern kingdom was totally wiped out. And I can tell you so many things about that. But now we only have a southern kingdom of Judah. And the king of Syria intended to do to Judah exactly what he had done to the northern kingdom Israel. But Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah took the letter from the king to the temple and they spread it out and said, Oh Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, this is what the king of Syria intends to do to us in essence. And God heard their prayer 
And he sent angels of the Lord among the armies of Syria and discomfited them. And the southern kingdom was preserved. The southern kingdom of Judah lasted until 606 B.C. But they waxed evil. They left off the things of God, the laws of God, the ordinances of God. They became paganistic, heathenistic. They made mockery of the things of God. And God allowed the king of Babylon to come across. And he partially destroyed the city and conquered in part. You say, why didn't Syria come? Because in the interim, the king of Babylon had conquered the king of Syria. And so now Babylon comes across. And God uses them to bring judgment upon the house of Israel. In 606 B.C., God gave those Jews in Judah 18 years to repent. They would not repent. They kept at it in spite of what had happened. So, God allowed Babylon to come back in about 588 B.C. They absolutely destroyed the temple. They destroyed the walls of Jerusalem. They carried away the best, the vessels, the treasures, what they had not taken 18 years before. They took everything. They carried the, the Jews away in chains in captivity and slavery into the land of Babylon. Now here's an interesting sidelight. When Jesus of Nazareth was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Jesus would have been born a crown prince from the royal house of David. Jesus was a crown prince from the royal house of David. He had the blood right and the legal right to the throne of the kingdom of Judah. But because his earthly kingdom had become destroyed approximately 600 years before his birth, there was no earthly throne to be seated upon. But this Jesus that we worship here, he was a crown prince from the royal house of David. But he didn't come with an earthly kingdom. He came with a spiritual kingdom. His kingdom was not of this world. His kingdom was a spiritual kingdom. That's why the Jews hated him. If the Jews, if he had capitulated to them, if he'd built a kingdom and threw out the Romans, they would have hailed him as the Messiah. They're still doing exactly the same thing now. They want someone to step on the scene to throw out the Arabs. They haven't changed a bit. The man who steps in and throws out the Arabs, they will hail as the Messiah. They get the same frame of mind they had way back there. And God continued to work with them. And so now we no longer have a northern kingdom of Israel. We no longer have a southern kingdom of Judah. And at the time of Jesus, it had fallen into the hands of the Romans. They call it Palestine. And so now we just have a place called Judea. It was the Roman province. But it was to this province, to this land, this remnant, that God himself, robed in flesh, was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Bethlehem in the Hebrew language is pronounced Beit Lechem, which means house of bread. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life, born in the house of bread, they didn't get the message. They didn't get it. They didn't make the connection. And Jesus preached to them, taught them. They would not hearken to him. Finally, Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name, and you will not receive me. He said, but there will come one in his own name, and him you will receive, the Antichrist. And one day, on the Mount of Olives, looking over the Temple Mount, what you don't know, what history doesn't tell us, because of the ever-present anti-Semiticism, the temple that stood in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus in his ministry, earthly ministry, the temple complex 
was really elaborated on by Herod the Great, who was a master architect and builder. He simply built upon the temple of Zerubbabel, which was the second temple. The Jews don't claim it. They claim the second temple as the temple that was standing at the time of Herod the Great because Herod the Great broadened or he enlarged the temple that Zerubbabel had built. And the temple that stood at the time of Jesus covered 37 acres. And there were more building blocks of material in the temple of Herod the Great than in all the pyramids of Egypt put together. And the Shekinah glory of God dwelt among the people. Rabbis say that in spite of all the blood that was shed from the blood sacrifices of the Temple Mount, not one fly was ever seen on the Temple Mount. That when the, the incense rose and the column of smoke from the sacrifices, no matter how hard the wind blew, the column of smoke always rose in a straight line. A miracle, they say, of God. And when they burned incense, this fragrance of the incense wafted down through the valleys and the hills. And as far away as Jericho, you could smell the fragrance and the donkeys would sneeze by the fragrance of the perfume that came from the burning of incense at the temple at the time of Jesus. We don't burn incense here. We lift our hands and we lift our voices. And it is as the burning of incense and as the evening sacrifice. When you worship right there, what this girl right here, she's been to Israel with me. This girl's been to Israel with me. She has danced and shouted in all of those places I'm talking about. She has seen it. But what she's doing right here is more valuable to God than the burning of incense or an animal sacrifice. Just a lifting of a hand. Doesn't it make you just want to put your hands in the air? Doesn't it make you just want to let your voice out? It's a fragrance. It's a fragrance to God. Let your voice out for a moment. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you because you are God. We bless you, Lord. We bless you. Jesus, one day, sitting with the disciples on the Temple Mount, he looked at the temple and he said to them, I tell you that not one stone will be left here on top of another. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. He said, only if you had known, if you had only known the day of your visitation, I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her brood under my wings, but you would not. And he's, in essence, he was saying, because you rejected me and the one who sent me, all of this will be destroyed. He said, not one stone will be left here on top of another. And they crucified him, the Lord of glory. And some 35 years later, in 70 AD, Titus, swept in with his hordes of soldiers and they lowered Jerusalem to the ground. Titus, the, the Jews, no one could do anything with them. They would not worship the gods of the Romans, as I said last night. They were a thorn in everybody's side. 
so are we. And will continue to be so. Finally, Titus compassed the city. He destroyed it. History tells us that Titus had no intention of destroying the temple. He was not going to destroy the temple. One of the reasons was because there were Romans in high places in the military that had intermarried with the royal house of the Jewish people. And one of the wives begged him not to destroy the temple. He wasn't going to destroy it. But mask hysteria, crowds out of control. Some of the soldiers took fire arrows and they shot into the temple. And the fire caught in the draperies and began to burn. And the temple was set on fire. And what people don't know is that the temple was built out of limestone. And limestone will burn if it gets hot enough. And the heat was so hot that the limestone blocks themselves began to burn. And they would explode. It sounded like bombs going off. The whole city was like it was being bombed. There was just cracking and explosions like gunfire as the temple went up in a roaring flame and on top of the temple there was a crown of pure gold that wrapped itself around the temple it could be seen from great distances as the sun lighted upon it it gleamed with power representing the glory of God that abode in that place but the fire melted the gold and the gold ran down the sides of the temple that was standing and melted in pools on the on the temple pavement and when the fire went out the romans came in with picks and shovels and axes whatever they could get a hold of and they scraped the gold off from the floor you can still see scrape marks some places in the temple mount where they believe the roman soldiers were scraping the gold off the temple and they were so desirous to get the gold but they turned over every stone. They took every stone down. They took everything down. It came to pass exactly like Jesus had prophesied. Not one stone will be left upon another. Heathen pagan hands digging the gold out that had represented the crown of the glory of life that God had given to them was now carried away in the pockets and the knapsacks of heathens. And so the temple was destroyed in the land. The city was ravaged. And they carried what Jews they didn't kill. The slaughter was unmentionable. What, what survived, they put them in chains and they carried them to the sea and put them in ships and carried them away throughout all the earth. And the great diaspora began. The surviving Jews were led away in chains, captive. The Romans did what every other conquering army has ever done to the land of Israel. When they left, when Titus left, they commanded the soldiers to chop all the trees down, set them on fire. They left the land totally a desolation. It was a total desolation, exactly as the prophets of old had said. If you will not serve me and keep my commandments, then this land will become a desolation and your city is uninhabited. And the people that walk by will look at you and remember what you once were and they will hiss at you. And it came to pass exactly as the prophets of old had uttered in their streets. The land was a desolation. Now here is something that is phenomenal. In the land of Israel, there's something called the early rain and the latter rain. The early rains bring to fruition 
the grain harvest. But the latter rains bring to fruition the oil, the olive, and the wine, the grape. The latter rains are symbolic of oil and wine, which is symbolic of the Holy Ghost. So the latter rain ushered in the oil and the wine, the glory of the Spirit of God. When the Jews were led away in chains and captivity in 70 AD, a phenomenal thing happened. The latter rains stopped falling. And with the forest eroded, burned, and chopped down, and not enough rain, the winds of erosion totally destroyed the land and left it a desert where Bedouins ecked out existence, scorpions crawled, and jackals howled. It was a total disaster. And remained so for nearly 1,900 years. But the prophecy said that he would bring them from the north and from the south and all the countries where he had driven them. He would bring them back again to their own land. At the turn of our century, another phenomenal thing happened. Jews, as early as the late 1800s, began to trickle back into the land, the ancient land of promise. They slipped across the borders and settled in obscure areas where the Arabs wouldn't go. They settled in swamps that were malaria infested, and the Arabs called them children of death. And the Jews, many of them lost their lives, but they, 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 they drained the swamps, they irrigated, and today it has become a garden of Eden. It's unbelievable what they have done. Soil reclamation. You've seen it. You've been there with your wife and your two children. And Carol Dilda has been there. We've seen all of this. When those Jews, my guide, Moshe Kafre, his parents were Russian Jews. And at the turn of the century, think about this, they walked from Russia to get to the promised land and slipped across the borders and settled near the springs of Herod in malaria-infested swamps. And the Arabs wouldn't go there. And they had their children and tilled their land and began to raise up silently, quietly, a nation. And what was phenomenal, when the Jews began to trickle back into the land of Israel, the ancient land of promise, the latter rains suddenly began to fall lightly again. With the return of the people, God's people, the blessing of the Lord, the rain began to return. It began to fall. Phenomenal, phenomenal. The more the Jews came year by year, the more latter rain fell year by year. The more they came, the more it fell. And there's a scripture that says to the Jewish people, when you come into your land, plant all manner of trees. So planting trees is an obsession with every Israel, is Israeli. We do it when we go there, if we have time. They began to plant trees, all manner of trees, in one place called the Scrolls of Fire. I can take you to a place and show you where the Jewish nation, the Jews and tourist people came, and they planted one, six million trees in memory of the six million who perished in the Holocaust. Today, that forest 
is about 50 years old. And as far as the eye can see, it is lush, lush vegetation. The mountains are forested. The eagle habitates there. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable what has happened. Unbelievable. And with the planting of trees, they give forth moisture into the air. And with the vapor that goes up, it forms clouds. And then the clouds pass over the land and drop the vapor back in rain. In other words, as the vapor goes up, the rain comes down. There's a principle here. As the vapor of your worship goes up, the rain will come down. But you're going to have to worship Him. You're going to have to send up the vapor. And it continued, it continued until, it continued until the independence of Israel in 1948 when Israel won against their enemies. They were outnumbered 40 to 1. The Jews were outnumbered 40 to 1. But they won the war. And when Ben-Gurion declared their independence in 1948 and declared Israel a nation state, the latter reigns returned in full. And they have continued to this hour. And the desert is blossoming as a rose. Exactly as the Bible said. But here is another phenomenal thing. As the, as the Jews began to trickle back into the land of promise after 1,900 years, and the latter rains began to fall lightly and in, increase at the turn of the century, on one hand, you've got the building of a natural kingdom, the Jewish people. But on the other hand, the Holy Ghost began to fall. The latter reign of the Spirit began to fall at the turn of the century. On one hand, you've got these Jews coming across borders. On the other hand, you've got denominational people begin to speak with tongues. Topeka, Kansas, not far from here. That should be, that should be raised up and reenacted. Yeah. Guess who is going to use to do it? You. God's not going to send some supernatural giant, spiritual giant in here to help you get this all done. He's going to raise them up from among you. Say, I like it. Say, I volunteer. Say, I'm going to do it. Say, look at your neighbor and say, we're going to make it happen. Lift your hands and cry to the Lord for a moment. Jesus of Nazareth! Jesus of Nazareth! Hallelujah! Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. We will utter with our voices. We will utter with our voices. We will make declarations. We will make it happen. We will make it happen. We'll do the things, oh God, that will cause the scriptures to come to pass. Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Thus it is written and thus it is. We're going to ask. We're going to seek. We're going to knock. We're going to ask. We're going to seek. We're going to knock. Hallelujah. And so to reiterate and connect, on one hand, God is building a natural kingdom. But on the other hand, God is building a spiritual kingdom. Here's the thing you need to understand here this morning. God is not a bigamist. He doesn't have two women at once. 
He's worked nearly 2,000 years on this bride, the church. Once he begins to give his attention to the natural people of God, that means our days here are numbered, people. This church is about to be lifted out of here because he's going to turn back to them and fulfill all the promises of the prophets of old. That's why you need to come to church whether you feel like it or not. And when you get here, you need to worship God. When you get here, you need to worship God. You need to, you need to, you need to absolutely get involved with the Spirit of the Lord. Something is happening. Something is happening. Something is happening. Jesus is going to come. It's going to happen exactly like the Bible says. You may be seated. I must hasten on. And so we've come to our particular day. In my lifetime, something was fought called the Six-Day War. The Six-Day War absolutely astounded, paralyzed the entire world. I think in a matter of three hours, the Israeli Air Force totally destroyed the Egyptian Air Force. And in written in the annals of war, the Arabs said of the Jews, the Israeli soldiers, we do not mind fighting the Jews, but there is a great white light that hovers over their armies that strikes fear in us. They said in the Sinai campaign, in those areas, the Egyptian soldiers said, there were angels of the Lord that rushed from behind the Israeli lines toward us, and it took the fight out of us. Do you hear me today when I say to you, it is written, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him. If God would do that for the Jewish people, what would he do for you? What would he do for me? The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him. There are angels in this place today. There are angels in your houses. There are angels in your car. There are angels on the job fighting for you, supporting you. You ought to clap. You ought to shout. You ought to dance. You ought to run. You ought to scream. You ought to get involved. You may be seated. This is astounding to me. 735 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah uttered this prophecy, speaking of Israel. He said, but they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. What do you mean God's going to protect them like birds flying? But in the Six-Day War, if you study it, there's a book entitled Lightning Out of Israel. You can get it in a reference library. Incredible. It chronicles every moment of the Six-Day War. I own it. It's in my library. What happened was those Israelis, they brought that scripture to pass. They took those jets like birds flying out over the Mediterranean Sea and came in over the shoulders of the ancient land of the Philistines. And that's exactly what they did. God sent them out over the sea. They came in behind them and they conquered as birds flying in the air. Unbelievable. People, this book is the most sure thing you're ever going to get a hold of. This book is an anchor. 33 years later, Isaiah made the same statement as birds flying. So will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. 
defending also he will deliver it and passing over he will preserve it that came to pass in the six day war God used those 19 year old Israeli kids flying those jets and they wiped out their enemies outnumbered 40 to 1 it is not by might nor by power but by my spirit saith the Lord God doesn't need the whole world he just needs a man he just needs a woman he just needs somebody that will stand up and say it he just needs somebody that will volunteer and say it And I am coming to a close. We hear about the battle of Armageddon. We hear about the nations of the world gathering for the battle of Armageddon. I can take you to the highest point in the Mount Carmel mountain range and overlook the valley of Armageddon. Napoleon stood there and said, it is the most natural battlefield in the entire world. Even the Israelis will tell you that here, the last battle between the forces of light and the forces of darkness, the sons of light and the sons of darkness will take place. Right now, according to Ariel Sharon, former Minister of Defense for the Nation of Israel, I listened to a lecture he gave. He said, Syria right now has 6,000 tanks. Iraq has 3,000 tanks. Jordan has 1,000 tanks. Egypt has 5,000 tanks. Saudi Arabia presently is building up tremendous armaments. They have purchased, Saudi Arabia has purchased $60 billion in military hardware just since 1991. Egypt is now building the largest air force in the Middle East. Iraq Iraq and Iran have missiles building for chemical warheads, nuclear weapons. Syria is working feverishly in these directions. If you look at a map, all those countries surround that little tiny nation of Israel. People, the stage is set. The stage is set. But what they don't understand is this God in the heavens will put a hook in their jaw and drag them into that land and he will annihilate them because God will fight for his people. He will fight for his people. He will fight for his people. And if God, if God will fight for the Jews like that, think what he will do for you and me. Baptized in the name of Jesus, filled with the Holy Ghost. Think what God will do for his church if his church will come to its feet. So, and I close with this. So while our people come to church or don't come to church, while our people across the world get involved with so many nonsensical things, half backslide, get involved with the world, drawn away into false doctrines, leaving the truth as we talked about here last night. While our people are coming and going and doing and not doing, all of the time, these things and many, many more that I could talk about, they're just ticking away just like that, just like a time bomb. Prophecies coming to pass day by day, day by day. People, there's enough in the news media that ought to cause you to come through those doors every time you come to church, shouting the victory, worshiping. I tell you, I tell you, instead of all these weak praise the Lord's we give, we ought to grab each other and say, Jesus is coming. Did you hear the news today? He's coming. More prophecy has come to pass. You feel like clapping again? I feel like clapping. I feel like jumping up and down with it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And while all this is going on, there is a great revival in the earth. There's a revival among us. The latter rains were seven times greater than the former rains. That means 
that we could expect in the latter days, the building of the latter house, the latter reigns, we could expect instead of 3,000 receiving the Holy Ghost in one day, 21,000 would receive it. And it's already happened many times over. We're there. It's not coming, people. It's here. Revival is here. It's here. It's here. It's here. But there's something going on in Judaism also. There's a revival in Judaism. I sat beside a Jewish rabbi. I upgraded to business class in March. I went to Israel as a guest. Ended up guiding the tour. That's what they wanted. But I went as a guest, but I ended up guiding it. And uh, I sat beside this Jewish rabbi, and we struck up a conversation. He had a wonderful human spirit. And I said to him, exactly what do you do? He said, I travel the world looking for young Jewish people, girls and boys, who have left the faith. And we would say to pray them through again. He said, but to bring them back to the Torah, to the law of God. I said to him, how successful are you with this? He said, I'm very successful. He said, I've got a school in Jerusalem. He said, we're reaching for our young people to get them back into the things of God and the laws of God. I have, from a periodical entitled Inside Israel, I have a photograph of a Jewish rabbi, probably in his early 40s. He is a Hasidic rabbi. That means the extremist of the religion, the ultra-Orthodox, the fanatics, the ones who dance, turn handsprings, fall out, walk on their hands at the, at the wailing wall. They are just fanatics for Jesus. You know what they do that over? Just the reading of the first five books of the Bible. If they can do that over reading, and you've got something called the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I mean, <clears throat> why don't you, why don't you tonight wear your oldest clothes? Why don't you wear something you don't care if it gets wrinkled or messed up? Why don't you come here tonight to get with the program, just to get into it? If they can turn handsprings and stand on their hands over the reading of the first five books of the Bible, we should do something here over baptism in Jesus' name and the baptism of the Holy Ghost speaking with tongues and the fire, the fire of God! May be seated. This rabbi goes into the streets in Tel Aviv, the marketplaces, the streets in Jerusalem, and he preaches. He's sort of like a Jewish Billy Graham type thing. He preaches and the streets are filled with young Israelis. And a lot of them are under the Western influence. Crazy clothes, the rings in the ears, the chains in the neck, etc. Now those young Israelis are into that. And this rabbi stands on the street and exhorts them from the first five books of the Bible about the laws of God, the perfection of the laws of God. He preaches away. And when those young people hear the word of God preached from a Jewish rabbi's lips, they come out of the crowd, kneel, sit on the cement pavement or street in front of him, and recommit their lives to Torah. And they reach up and pull the rings out of their ears and throw them on the cement and rip the chains off their necks and throw them down. And they bring the scissors and they cut their hair on the streets as they return to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the laws of God. If the Jews understand that, what ought we to be doing? 
in this hour as a Pentecostal people who are buried in his name, filled with his spirit. My God, my God, people, this is not the time to let go. This is the time to hold on and to preach it and to preach it and to preach it and to preach it and to tell them, yes, I'm one of them. Yes, I'm one of them. Yes, I'm one of them. I've been to water in Jesus' name. I spoke in tongues when the Holy Ghost came. Yes, we believe in holiness. Yes, we believe in separation. Yes, we believe in baptism in Jesus' name. There's only one God, one God, one God, one God, one God. Yes! Hallelujah! Would you all stand to your feet? Would you clap? Would you shout at the top of your voice? We've got to stir ourselves up in God. We've got to stir ourselves up in Him. Hallelujah. Does anybody feel like running to this altar, running up on this platform to make room for somebody else and throw their hands in there and say, yes, I'm going to rededicate. I'm going to do it like I've never done it before. I'm going to live this no matter what my friends do. I'm going to get involved no matter what anybody else does. I'm going to be involved. I'm going to get involved. Yes, let your voice out. Let your voice out. Let your voice out. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Push your way in. Push your way in. God's got a hold of you. God's got a hold of you here this morning. God's got a hold of you in this place this morning. <laughs> hallelujah. 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 If you're ever going to pray through, now is the time to pray through. If you're ever going to live for God, now is the time to live for God. If you're ever going to do it, now is the time to do it. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. The strength of the Lord, the strength of the Lord, the strength of the Lord. That, that's it, that's it, the strength of the Lord. I replenish your strength, I replenish your strength. That's it, that's it, that's it. That's it. That's it. on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at the Life Church KC. Reference the episode notes for more details.